This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. But let's look at numbers as reopening starts to be a conversation. How it will happen, what it means. Where do we sit now? And how are things looking? We can hear, hey, look, today, only 1,200 and some cases. That's good. That's great. But what are the numbers saying? Ryan Imgrund is a biostatistician and has been following the pandemic through numbers like rate of transmission and through numbers that kind of go into a whole lot of graphs and make for a whole lot of data. And he's here to put all of that data into words for us. Ryan, how is Monday going? Uh, maybe we'll put a, Can we put it on a Tom Brady scale? Is it a seven Super Bowl day? <laughs> it's it, it's not too bad. <laughs> Good. How how are we doing in Ontario? In Ontario, are we having a seven Super Bowl morning? Uh, we are definitely not right now. I think we're having an okay morning. Um, it's not too bad. We're not seeing the numbers come down as fast as we would like to see the numbers come down. Um, but I think we'll see over the over this next week or two. I think it's going to be really really telling um, with this new variant in play. Yeah, okay, well, we'll get to that in just a minute, but when you mention that the numbers aren't coming down maybe as fast as everyone would like them to, they seem to be coming down. I mean, there was the big pronouncement, as strange as it sounded, because we used to have days when you were never over 2,000 new cases, but we'd been under 2,000 cases for basically a week, and we would take that to be a positive. Compare us to other spots. How are we doing in Canada? Well... We're not doing too bad throughout Canada. Um, I think one thing that we're seeing is many, many provinces right now have a reproductive rate under 0.9. That means in, in the span of about one month, the cases will actually go down by about half. Here in Ontario, it's around 0.95, so our cases aren't going to drop as much. Now, we're seeing um, it, a lot of places uh, like uh, Alberta and uh like Quebec right now, um, the lockdown seems to be very effective over there. Um, they're... Like cases were significantly above where Ontario's were um, about six weeks ago, and now they're right around where Ontario is right now. Okay, so in other words, they're they're doing a little bit better than than we are in terms of the decline. They certainly are. Yes, they're um, you know they're actually doing really really well. Um, they were at around three hundred weekly cases per. 100,000 people. Now, to put that into like perspective, here in Ontario, we had Peel region, um, which was the hardest hit region. They were at around 300 weekly cases per 100,000. So you can imagine a whole entire province um, was at the rate that like Peel is at, and they have been able to like bring it down to you know about the average rate here in Ontario right now throughout the whole province. So it, it's it's been a huge, huge decline in some of those areas. Is there anything to point to in the numbers in Ontario that could tell us what the next little while is like? Or like you just mentioned, is it about how the variants spread through? Yeah, I think that's going to be very, very telling because we know that the reproductive rate of these variants is above one. Now, we do know that as of a few weeks ago, the variants made up about 5% of the the COVID-19 found here in Ontario. Um, but because they spread more, um, a lockdown is going to bring down the number of like cases, but it's not going to necessarily bring down the number of variant cases. Um, and I think, too, once we have schools start to reopen and we know that this variant spreads a little bit more um, amongst 
younger kids, we may start to see the variant numbers increase, the other numbers decrease. So this little decrease now may just be a decrease in the regular strain, not necessarily the variant strain. We're talking with Ryan Imgrund, biostatistician, and we're looking at the numbers. We know that later today, Ryan, we're expecting to hear Ontario Premier Doug Ford lay out perhaps a reopening strategy. The numbers and the reopening, do you see those going together in any way? Yeah, that's going to be a really, really big problem because I think once you throw in schools going back, you throw in a reopening as well. We're already in a very, very fragile state. When you've got this reproductive value above one, it means that numbers are kind of plateauing. They're going down a little bit, but they're not significantly going down. Um, if you look at some of these other provinces, once again, that are that are at around a reproductive rate of 0.85, once you send kids back to school, once you reopen the economy, that rate is going to start to increase a bit. So we always need to remember that the second we open up, we're going to see cases start to increase. And if we're if we start to open up, when we only see a plateau happen, we will inevitably see an increase. Ryan, we always hear public health officials, politicians talking about how safe our schools are. You've mentioned schools a couple of times. You work in our schools. When you look at the safety of schools, how do you describe it? Yeah, I think one thing that we need to keep in mind with schools is that we haven't had as many changes in schools as we thought we would see back in August. There was a big push in August for asymptomatic testing within schools. We got a little bit of it done in some super high-risk regions in like December. Um, We had it mentioned a whole lot last month, but here we are going back. um, And there's not really a solid asymptomatic screening uh, protocol in place. The other thing is we don't have a good screening tool here in Ontario that is going to necessarily keep COVID-19 out of schools. We've got one screening tool used across the whole entire province, and it's not different from one area to the next. And one of the big issues with that is that if you look at some areas that have very, very few cases, a cough in those areas may not necessarily be COVID-19. But if you look to an area with a high transmission rate, a cough maybe COVID-19. So I think that's one thing which we don't have here in our schools is we don't have a good regional screening tool that is based off of symptoms in those areas. Biostatistician Ryan Imgren joining us. Ryan, as we close out, as this week opens up, it may not be a seven Super Bowl week in Ontario, but what numbers are you watching most closely? Yeah, so I'm watching the reproductive rate. Um, That's the most important one right now. And it's one that we got to keep under one. If we have this at one and then we start to reopen, it's going to be a really, really big problem. But I think that's the important one to be watching right now is the reproductive rate of the virus. You want that under one. We got to keep it under one. It's got to stay under one. Ryan, keep safe. Keep up the great work. Thanks for the time. Thanks for having me. Take it easy. Biostatistician Ryan Imgrund. So the reproductive rate needs to stay under one. What if it doesn't? I mean, there are a lot of things to think about. You can't open up businesses again and then say, yeah, but in a couple of weeks, we're going to lock it all down again. Can you? Like, that can't happen. We can't have businesses put in that spot. Tell me again, why can't a bookstore be open? 
where is the rate of transmission and the data that suggests that there was great spread in restaurants, things like that. That's stuff that we need to be seeing from the province. If there is a concern, tell us. If there is not, then don't use this as a, well, we're doing something. We've talked with the Ontario government about this before in a number of ways, asking, hey, are you choosing big business like the big box stores over small business? They say no because they say there are all kinds of programs to help small businesses. Talk to the small businesses. They'll tell you, yeah, okay, some money is nice, but it's not covering off everything that we're losing through this. There was a day many months ago I'm not sure why this was the case. It was before the winter, but I was going downtown London. I had to park, and I had to get out of my vehicle to drop off a thing at a basically a curb in an envelope. And that's, that, that's a pandemic-type thing to do. And I was walking along Dufferin, and it hit me. It was early in the morning. There wasn't anybody around. It was during, actually, I think the first lockdown. And I thought, you know what this feels like? This feels like the morning of a Forest City road race. Somebody should be blowing up that inflatable finish line right here, right now. And even back then, I was thinking, yeah, that's that's what should be happening now. And it's really weird that something like that is not happening. Well, you know what? Forest City road races are still around, and there are ways to get involved. And joining us right now is someone who can fill us in on how this is going. Where if you've said, I'm going to take up exercising in 2021, I'm going to do this, this is a great thing to be a part of. Shauna Versloot joins us, race director with Forest City Road Races. Shauna, how are things? Hi, things are very good, actually. Our registration is going amazing this year so life is good for forest city road races nice that is outstanding to hear and i look forward to the day when we've got crowds of people in and around different places where you're running races certainly around victoria park where you've got that inflatable finish line shauna tell us a little bit first off just so we can describe how races are working in early 2021 what does a race look like um, well, we are trying to make the race process as interesting as we can for this year. Um, we're hearing a lot of feedback that it's actually really exciting because it's the first time that, or it's one of the very few times that people can race from home or race on the trails and design their own course, which could be the fastest course that they want to create for themselves. Um, and have family members or neighbors put their medals on them and have their own post-race drinks and treats for afterwards. So definitely a unique experience, but um, giving people the opportunity to race virtually and submit their results online to a live leaderboard so they can see how they're doing against other people is kind of neat in itself, too. Absolutely. I think you've got people thinking, okay, if I were to go to this point a little ways from my house, and I was to run down there and then down there, and then I'll take that turn, and you could design mostly downhill, I think. That that might be a possibility. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) The fastest 5K you've ever run. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you need from 
entrance to show that, okay, this is 5K instead of, well, I think I mapped it out to about 5K, but look, I did it in nine minutes. This is fast. Wow, that was easy. How do we know that we've got exactly what we need to be entered into a Forest City road race this year? Yeah, so that's actually, that was our biggest social media post last year was the debates on how people measure their route. So we had everything from people who are using different running apps like RunKeeper um, and MapMyRun. And then we have other people who are getting in their cars and driving their 5K route and mapping it out. And other people who are getting their old paper maps out and measuring 5K. So from our perspective, how you measure your route is completely up to you. And we're going on the honor system that people are running the actual 5 or 10 or 21 kilometers. And we certainly should be able to go on the honor system. And mm-hmm. if you're running nine minutes, you might want to at least defend your honor system. Nobody's running 5K in nine minutes. It's hard to run 5K in 19 minutes. That's for the elite. Let's yeah. look at how this is working out. We're talking with Shauna Versloot, race director with Forest City Road Races, because they continue on the next race or the big race is in april is it not it is going to be on april 25th so some races are that are going virtual are saying that you can complete your distance anytime within a month and we're trying to hold true to race day we're in our 39th anniversary so we're trying to make that a very vibrant fun have a leaderboard you can race anytime that day but it has to be april 25th because then at least we get the weather involved, right? Yeah, you, you're battling it out all in the same conditions, no matter what. <laughs> because if you were to do it now, let's face it, this week might not be the week that you pick. Because running a 5K or a 10K or even a 21K in minus 10, minus 15 with the wind chill, you're probably going to come up with a better time on a hopefully sunny and warm April afternoon. So April 25th, what's the best way to sign up? Um, So registration is all through Race Roster. Uh, There's a link on our Facebook page. There's a link from our website, forestcityroadraces.com. Um, as well as our Instagram, and people can sign up. We're going to send out an email the first week of April to go over race kit pickup. We're still waiting to hear what the COVID guidelines are (laughs) regarding our race kit pickup. Uh, So we're not positive if we're going to be doing porch drop-offs again or if we're going to be doing in-person curbside pickup. We'll have to keep everyone posted in uh, the beginning of April. Gotcha. Anybody who's ever run a race before knows that one of the best race kits that you get, in other words, you get a little gift bag, a little goodie bag, and certainly the medals, if you've never seen a Forest City Road Race medal, usually you need a wheelbarrow to take it home. At least have some room in the back seat, because it'll need a spot all by itself, and it makes for a great showpiece in and around the house. This year, you guys, Shauna, are promising the best race kit Ever. Ever. What is inside it? Can we know? Yeah, so we are very fortunate and thankful that we have Canada Life as our title sponsor. And we also have M&T Printing Group as one of our major sponsors. And they are taking over, helping with our having the best race kit ever. So our medals are coming locally from M&T Printing. They are beautiful and just as big as ever. 
Um, our shirts, we're supporting Source for Sports, which is another local business, and they are the softest, nicest, long sleeve race shirts you could possibly have. Um, and then we also, everybody is getting their own finish banner from M&T Printing as well, That so everybody who's participating virtually can run through their very own finish banner, which I think is really neat too, because there's usually only one person, the fastest person of every event who gets to run through the finish line. And this year, everybody gets to run through their own finish line. So that's it's another another stuff. bonus to virtual. Yeah. The shirt is soft, so that prevents chafing. That's very good. That's always mm-hmm. important. And your own finish line. That is fantastic. You get the kids to hold it across as you run up the driveway, hopefully after a large downhill course. We are talking right now with Shauna Verslut, who's the race director of Forest City Road Races. Remember, they do come up. On April the 25th, and you are welcome to map out exactly where you want to run and what distance it is, 5K, 10K, 21K. And the last thing we want to mention, Shauna, is this is in support of the kids at the Thames Valley Children's Center. Can you talk to us about that partnership? Yeah, so we are very proud to support over 11,000 kids at the Thames Valley Children's Center we are a completely nonprofit event, and all proceeds go to the kids' programs and equipment at the Thames Valley Children's Center. Well, head to forestcityroadraces.com. Check this out. It will give us something to do, and it gives us something to look forward to. Shauna, we really appreciate all the info. Best of luck with registrations. Thank you so much, Mike. That is Shauna Versloot. Shauna is the race director with Forest City Road Races. Need stuff to look forward to. I said we'd go looking for things. It may not be a beach with a margarita or a mojito just yet, but at the same time, if you've never taken part, this this could be ideal because you know that feeling of, well, maybe I'd like to run a 5K someday, but I don't really want to run it where I'm going to be running it in front of a lot of other people. People, you know, or with a lot of other people. I don't want to start off the finish line and be left in the dust. And you always think like that. You have to realize that never happens in a race. That absolutely never happens. The line does not take off and shoot ahead. There are so many people at so many different levels of running. You're never going to be left in the dust. You always have strollers in behind you. There's kids in strollers. So remember that. You're never going to be left in the dust. But this is a perfect opportunity to compete in a race and get that kind of a feeling and cross your own finish line and yet not have to do it in that formal setting so that you can look and say, you know, I actually ran that in this amount of minutes, and I looked that up, and that's not bad. You know, that that's better than I thought. That's that's great. And then maybe next year we can all get together and do this all at the same time. What do you think? It's, it's something to look forward to. I'm telling you, we're going to continue to look for stuff to look forward to. Between now and whenever we have to stop looking forward to, you know, things together and we can kind of say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do this and you're going to do this. And life is back to a little bit more of a normal feel. We're not there yet. Let's talk with Tom Cook. Dr. Cook joins us every Monday as we look at 
A few privacy-related issues. Dr. Cook is the Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing, as well as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center, both at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, how's Monday? It's great. My my Leafs won on the weekend, so I'm happy. I'm sad to see that Simmons is out. Um, otherwise, the sun is shining. And it's occurred to me that I should probably quit one of my jobs so that you don't have to read uh, such a long title every Monday. Oh, no, hey, you! everybody earns their titles. <laughs> if you need four business cards for your title, you've earned every one of those business cards. So that's the key in all of this. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Let's talk a little bit about Google because something happened last week. Their lead engineer quit, and that would sound like a, eh, so on. I don't even know what the lead engineer for Google would do. But you'd like us to grab our microscopes and train them onto this fact. Why is that? Yeah, thanks, Mike. This is a really, really important news item. I mean, we've we've discussed a lot of things in in the previous weeks and previous months that are they're very significant to all of us. But uh, this one strikes me at at the very, very top of the list. Uh, let me explain why by working through the actual incident. So, yes, um, a lead engineer had quit. There was actually two engineers that had quit. Um, one of them was uh, David Baker, who is a lead engineer with uh, Google's Trust and Safety Division. Um, which basically oversees ethics and making sure that the the products are functioning the way they should. And the other one that quit was um, a software engineer named uh, Vinesh Kanan. But the reason why they quit, it's actually two of them, not just one, is because back in December, this may have flown under the radar because of everything going on in Trump land, um, there was a, a lead AI ethics researcher named Teamnit Gabru who was fired by Google because she published a paper. And that led to these lead engineers quitting last week. So that's where we're at, Mike. Okay. So take us through what the impact is once that happens to something like Google. I I like setting that up so that you would ask me that question. I have been (laughs) anticipating this (laughs) because it's such a big one. So thanks for doing that for me. So what ended up happening here was that um, we have to understand is that Team Nick Gabriel is a world-leading researcher on racial and ethnic bias in machine learning and artificial intelligence systems. She is an incredibly accomplished researcher, and she is an ethics-first researcher. Her job is to go and study how artificial intelligence and machine learning systems, like those being developed at Google, can be problematic for society. <clears throat> A few years ago, um, TeamNet had published a really, really important paper, one that actually broke significant ground in many fields. And what the paper had demonstrated, Mike, was that darker-skinned females are misclassified, are the most misclassified user group uh, within any facial recognition system, up to approximately 34% inaccuracy. And I think what the the paper was really exposing here are two things. It's not just the matter that black women are not profiled correctly by facial recognition systems. It's that the people who are designing the systems are modeling their own faces. And those faces happen to be the faces of white men. So it raises this question, what does it mean to have privileged white men create facial recognition systems used by police departments 
that are meant to detect white people. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that it's revealing, kind of on the side here as well, that these systems are built in terms of tiers. If black women are the most misclassified group, it's also the case that people with darker skin color happen to be misclassified as well, then uh, darker colored uh, men, and then at the, the top of the rungs are white men. So there's this classification system, and depending upon the color of your skin, you are more susceptible to being misrepresented or misidentified uh, accordingly. So this paper made Google very angry to the extent that they told her, retract your publication or we're letting you go. And she refused to, of course, pull the paper and they fired her, which led to two engineers quitting in the last week. And there is now a firestorm of debate around artificial intelligence and ethics all across the globe as a result. Hmm. So mm-hmm. when there's a firestorm among things like Google and when we're talking about people all around the world, what do you expect to happen? Is, is this a conversation that's going to be helpful or is this something where we just kind of get more of the same? I think it's going to be helpful. I, I think primarily because, well, there's two reasons really, Mike. The first is that it's exposing that the design of these systems is very problematic. It's showing that there is bias in them. And this is a scientific paper. This is not uh, somebody like me, a social scientist who has gone in and studied social things, cultural things, political things in and around a system. Her research is scientifically driven. And what it's proving factually is that there is this problem. But what's also speaking to, Mike, is a larger, more systemic issue about inclusion in major corporations in the West. The majority of Google's employee makeup is not of black women. In fact, Google has a massive diversity problem. And this is one of the reasons why Google has been unionizing in the last year. Some of us might recall from, it's crazy to think this is almost two years ago now, Mike. Um, Google created like a, an AI ethics council. It was in March of 2019. And, and part of the reason why so many Google employees are upset about um, the way the, this AI Ethics Council was put together is because Google decided to include a very, very controversial figure named Kay James, who is openly anti-immigrant and anti-transgender. So why create an AI Ethics Council if it's going to include people who are unethical? So this the storm of people saying that this company has a real problem with race. This, this company has a real problem with ethics around ethnicity and gender. This has been brewing for quite some time. And then it galvanizes into these kinds of incidents where team that is fired for doing research, which I find absolutely crazy offensive as a researcher, frankly, to the extent that other engineers are, are quitting. And what's coming out now is this, this discourse about what it means to have proper representation of the population you're serving within your own ranks. Because if you don't do this properly, you build technology that fails. And when the technology fails, you're going to hurt people. That's the big takeaway of this. And it's definitely making an impact, excuse me, on how companies are framing their AI and their ethics and their gender inclusion and racial inclusion policies right now, for sure. What appeared to be just a line of a news story, lead engineer at Google quits, turns into something 
far more important to know all about. Dr. Cook, thank you for helping us to know more about this because you're right. When you don't have proper representation and your software fails, everybody around the world, we're all the ones that are feeling it in various degrees. Thank you so much for the time today. We'll talk next week. Sounds great. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. Have a great week, London. Bye-bye. Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy Ethics and Internal Threat Assessment Manager and also postdoctoral fellow in the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 